Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> if you didn't bring a Bible, there is one provided for you right there in the pew rack. Glad for you to have that. Open it up and uh, follow along. You'll need a Bible here at Hickory Grove to go through, hopefully calling your attention to what the Bible says. Mark chapter 10, we'll start in verse 35. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's start there in verse 35. <clears throat> James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Join me as we pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us. I pray that you would strengthen Strengthen tired and weary hands and souls. God, I pray that today would be a day of encouragement, of nourishment, of changing, of hope. Lord, just a sliver of hope. Would you provide hope today? God, would the gospel be useful by your spirit? Will you take it? So to you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come. We ask you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Nineteen forty-five, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor. He had already served two years in a Nazi war prison. <clears throat> Been arrested by Hitler's Gestapo for preaching the gospel, but more than that, for anti-Nazi propaganda. He was a Lutheran pastor, which are not, it's not hard to find a Lutheran pastor in Germany, but it was a different kind of Lutheran pastor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer led something called the Confessing Church. Small group of people that lived in the Third Reich. The Confessing Church refused to bow the knee to the swastika. Instead, they clung to the cross. 
you know anything about World War II history, you know that in the spring of 1945 that the war is coming to an end. The Americans have crossed the English Channel, and now in April they have crossed the Rhine. They're going into Germany from the east. The Russians are coming across, and Germany is being squeezed. As the Allies close in, Hitler has his SS start a indiscriminate wholesale extermination of all the prisoners of war, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A 39-year-old Lutheran pastor is marched out of his jail cell April the 19th, 1945, and unceremoniously taken into the courtyard and hung by his neck until he died. Now, it's not uncommon for people to be killed in war. It's not uncommon for the Nazis to do that. What was so tragic, in addition to him dying, what was so tragic was that just three weeks later, to the day, three weeks later, Adolf Hitler would take a gun and shoot his girlfriend, Eva Braun, and put the gun to his head and kill himself, and World War II would be over. While Bonhoeffer spent that time in Jail cell, Nazi Germany. He wrote lots of things. You can find all kinds of poems that he wrote. One of the most famous poems that he wrote, and I would commend it to you, is a poem named Who Am I? He wrote that right before he was executed. But what he is probably most famous for is his book called The Cost of Discipleship. <clears throat> and while you may never have read that book, you probably already know the most famous line in it. Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The cost of discipleship. It's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson for American Christians to learn. It's a hard lesson for the disciples in our passage to learn. Let's go into the context. In the context of this story, they have started their journey across the Jerusalem road, headed to Jerusalem. Jesus has been talking with them and teaching them in the immediate context of our story in verse 33 and 34, and you can see it in your text. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus has given a detailed explanation of what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. That he'll be handed over, that he'll be condemned, that he will be crucified, and on the third day, God will raise him from the dead. It's a remarkable teaching. And right after saying that, two of the greatest disciples, their brothers, James and John, they had the audacity to ask Jesus, when you come into your glory, Will you put us one on one side, one on the other? And out of that set of circumstances, Jesus swivels and teaches the disciples a lesson on the cost of discipleship. And that lesson flies right in the face of what is understood as leadership in the world today. My hope for you today short time we have together. My hope for you today is that your heart and your mind and your soul 
will be strengthened as you seek to be a disciple. Because, because true discipleship, true discipleship is truly glorious. Let's go to it. Let's get to the passage. Let's go to the Bible. And uh, I wanna, here's what I want to do. I want to just walk through it quickly, take a few moments, just point out a couple of things in the passage, then come back and maybe make some application for the sermon. Join me there in verse 35. Never go wrong reading the Bible. Let's get back to it. Verse 35, there they are, James and John. They're called the sons of Zebedee. That's their father. They also have been called the sons of thunder. James and John are part of the original trio, James, John, and Peter. Sometimes it's four of them with Andrew that are close to Jesus. They are the inner circle with Peter and Andrew. Peter and James and John were the ones on the mountain of transfiguration. They've been with Jesus all of this time. They've got a few moments with Jesus by himself. We don't know where Peter is or the other nine. Verse 35, James and John have a question. It's more of a demand, really. Teacher, we want you to give us what we want. I want you to make a promise you'll give me whatever I ask. Some of you have had a child say that before. If you're a good mother, you're like, no, I'm not doing that. So Jesus says, what is it you want? Verse, 20, verse 36, what do you want? And then it's out, the ambition. We want you to give us, when you get into your glory, verse 37 is remarkable. I mean, on, on one hand, it's, it's remarkable that James and John actually believe that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to be king there. So they got that part right. What they don't have is what it's going to cost. And so they say in verse 37, we want you, when you get into your glory and you're sitting on the throne, I want to be on one side and my brother on the other. We don't want the throne. We just want to be next to it. Verse 38, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. What it says. It's a, it's a, verse 38 is a straight rebuke. And then he puts before them what's on the way. You think you can drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Be baptized with the baptism with which I am going to be baptized with. And look at the hubris in verse 39. And they say, yeah, we're able to do that. They don't call us the sons of thunder for nothing. We can take that. Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're actually going to taste it. You see him saying that in verse 39, the cup that I drink, you'll, you'll drink it. As all Christians do, all of us suffer in some sort of fellowship with Jesus. Jesus tells James and John, the cup that I drink, you'll drink of that. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you also will be baptized. But look, you've asked for something that is not mine to give. That's the Father has planned that from the foundation of the world. Verse 40, to sit there in those seats. Those seats have already been reserved. They're not mine to give. They're having this conversation. Peter, and James, uh, Peter is not there. James and John and Jesus are talking. Verse 40, the end of the conversation, verse 41, somehow the other 10 notice that James and John have have Jesus cornered over there. So they come over, let me, let me, what are you guys talking about? And they somehow hear the back end of that conversation. And verse 41 says, now the 10 are upset. They're indignant. They're mad. And a 12-man melee takes place right there in verse 41. They start this terrible argument. Verse 42. <clears throat> Jesus called them and said to them, here comes the lesson. Here comes the lesson. You know that those who are considered rulers in the Gentiles, the pagans, you, you guys are acting like a bunch of pagans. 
That's what he's saying. You know that the rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. That's not how, verse 43, that's not how we're going to do it. That's what Jesus is saying, verse 43. It, not, it shall not be so with us. But whoever would be great among you, that's the servant. Verse 44 is attitude, attitude, verse 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45, look at me. This is Jesus. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Here comes the gospel. The end of verse 45. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, true discipleship truly is glorious. There's the story. Let's go to it and see if we can make some sermonic, maybe some application. Let's start slow. We'll build on top of it. Here's the first one that I've noticed. Number one, true discipleship, according to this passage, true discipleship rejects personal gain. True discipleship is not building your own kingdom. I mean, this is astounding, verses 35 and 6 and 7, that the, when you read in verse 35, that these two apostles, James and John, they are well thought of. John, the beloved apostle, I mean, it's unbelievable. They would come to Jesus like this and ask for a blank check. We want you to give us whatever we ask for. I'm, this is stunning to me. I mean, just think with me just for a moment about the, the apostles. I mean, it, I'm, I'm stunned by the fact of how unspiritual they are. I mean, they've been with Jesus all of this time. They've heard his teaching. They've watched his miracles. They've heard him say three times now, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there, rise from the dead. They still are not getting it. I'm amazed that they're their lack of situational awareness. I mean, think about verses 33 and 34. Jesus has just dropped the heaviest, most detailed explanation of his crucifixion on them and all they can think of. I mean, man, read the room. All they can think of is, let me be on one side, my brother on the other. I, it's, uh, you know what's astounding to me? Is the self-grandeur, to think that much of yourself. I mean, honestly, when you read it in verse 35, it feels a lot like a demand. You have to dig a little deeper for this. Uh, you have to go to the parallel passage in Matthew. Matthew tells the same story, but the way Matthew tells it is it wasn't James and John that was doing this. It was, it was their mother. A lot of you ambitious moms out there, be careful. It's James and John's mom, you're going to read it. And if you, if you pull it a little further, what you find out is James and John's mother, her name was Salome. Salome is the sister to Mary, who is Jesus' mother. So here's Salome coming in and exercising her right as an aunt. Manipul there's some manipulation there. You know what else I thought? James and John and Peter always have seemed like a trio. This, this feels like a betrayal of, of, of Peter. 
When you read this, what we, I mean, it's an ugly picture. This, is, this also speaks to the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible because all of our heroes in the Bible, they all have feet of clay. They're, they're, these guys look really bad right here because they have personal gain in mind. This speaks to us uh, as believers when we think about our, our position, our influence, um, what we are seen as, where we sit. This hit me, um, uh, what title we're called by. This week I'll be preaching in Oklahoma at a church, but then I'll come back next week. I'll be preaching at a discipleship conference right here at our church in Mallard Creek, North Carolina Baptist State Discipleship Conference. I've seen lots of advertisements, about 1,100 people are going to be there. I'm really excited about it. And I saw a podcast, they were talking about it, and uh, the guy doing the podcast said, yeah, we look forward to being at Hickory Grove and get to hear Dr. Clint Presley preach. He just gave me an honorary doctorate right there. And I actually enjoyed hearing him say that and had not given any thought to actually correcting him. I probably would not have corrected him until I got a text uh, this morning uh, that said, hey, uh, watch that podcast and I, just congratulations on your degree. I didn't know you had finished that degree. And I thought, well, there's the honor of that degree gone, uh, that honorary doctorate. But it felt good. It's nice to have a title. Jesus says, that's not how we do things. James and John, they want a title. They want to sit there right by the, by the throne. This, you know what this is? This is what about meism? Some becoming of a disciple, the cross, the cross is where we're headed. A couple of questions just to lay before you and we'll move to the second point. Two questions you might ask yourself. Number one, are you easily, <clears throat> are you easily offended? Something happens to you personally, are you easily offended? If so, you might have a problem with pride. You might have a problem with ambition. Or, or here's the second question. Do you think your way is the right way all the time? Or should I say most of the time? Okay, roll that around. Let's go to the next point. Number two, <clears throat> true discipleship. Number two, true discipleship fights that pride, fights that pride. That's verse 38, 39, 40, and 41. Verse 38, I'll just sort of walk you through it. There, Jesus absolutely rebukes them, and he uses two metaphors in verse 38 and 39. See the rebuke, then the metaphor, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. There's the rebuke. You don't know what you're asking. Here's the question. The metaphors are coming. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? There's one metaphor. Are you able to be baptized in the baptism with which I am baptized? What does he mean that? So you reach over in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the cup is the cup of God's wrath that those that are in sin would drink to the absolute dregs, the judgment of God. It's the same metaphor Jesus will use in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asks God the Father, Father, remove this cup from me if possible. Let this cup pass. That's the cup he's talking about. Or, or when he says uh, the baptism, are you, are you able to be baptized? What does he mean by that word baptism? In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he'll use it again. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is he talking about? What is the cup and what is the baptism? The cup is the cup 
of God's wrath and condemnation that he pours out on sinners. The baptism is being flooded by the fury of God's wrath, Jesus drowning in the ocean of God's judgment. And he says to James and John, I'm going to Jerusalem to drink a cup and to be baptized. Do you think you can do that? Look at the hubris, verse 39. Look at the hubris. James and John say, yeah, we can handle that. Bring it. This is James and John thumping their chest. This is, this is what we oftentimes do when we overestimate our ability and underestimate God's grace. We rely on our own ability and sometimes it, sometimes it, is, a, sometimes it is a kindness of God when he brings pain. Because that pain reminds us I'm not able. Sometimes it's all right to be broke a little bit. I don't want to be broke all the time. But to be broke and be reminded God is able. Take us down into some suffering to remind us that no, we are not able. God is able. Verse 39, Jesus tells the boys, James and John, yeah, you're going to taste a little bit of it. As all Christians do, you'll, you'll drink some of the cup You'll, you'll be baptized in the baptism that I'm baptized with. You'll, you'll taste some of it. Being, being a Christian, part of being a Christian is being in the fellowship with Christ, having fellowship in his sufferings. I mean, these two gentlemen, James and John, they're brothers. James, they're like, um, they're like bookends of the apostles. James is the very first apostle that will be killed. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. There is Herod Agrippa kills him by the sword. He dies instantly. That's his suffering. John, who will go on to live and be the oldest apostle to live all the way up until he's exiled on the island of Patmos, he'll die an old man with no friends. He has his own kind of suffering. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to taste. You've asked for something that, that is reserved. Verse 40, they've asked for seats. And Jesus says, that's not mine to give. The Father has reserved. Those seats have been prepared for someone. We don't know who. You get a little taste of it, though, when, when uh, Paul writes for us that you, you are his workmanship. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Just hearing Jesus say this, that that's something God has prepared, reminds us his plan is good and he has a plan and he's taking you somewhere. They're having this conversation, the other 10, there are 10 other guys, they don't like this a bit. Notice how they, they don't act any better than James and John. Verse 41 tells us when the 10 heard it, they come up and they're indignant and then a fight begins. And you know why this fight happened? Because of pride. James and John thought they knew best. They asked for something. We want power. The other 10 hear it and they're throwing a fit, not because they're asking for power, but because they thought of it first. And there's absolute division. Look, let me just pause here and say, there are times when a church needs to split up. There are times when a church needs to fight. There are times when there ought to be a terrible argument. But those times have to do with the truth of the scripture, the veracity of the gospel, and first tier, top tier doctrinal things. Not, 
when somebody wants something and somebody else doesn't. Not when there's jealousy, debating, figuring out who's right. That's going on right there in verse 41, and Jesus walks up on them. How do we fight? How do we fight against that kind of division? A couple of things I think are helpful that I would like to offer up. One is we, we pray for humility. It's good for you to pray for humility. Be careful praying for humility. God is a kind God. When, when we pray for humility, God brings about that which humbles us. Now, he's, he'll lay that on you gently, but he will. Humility is good for our souls because it reminds us that God is a, an enemy to the proud. And I don't want to be on that side. I want to be on this side. Ask God to give you humility. Another, another one is to, to become familiar with the doctrine of grace to learn to love the doctrine of grace, God's grace given to you in salvation. The more you understand your sinfulness before God, that you were a filthy sinner destined for hell, that's what you deserved, and that he reached in and got you out of the pit by his grace and only by his unmerited faith. When you start thinking of the big things about grace, it helps with humility. You think, I didn't deserve any of this. There's a third thing you can do to help with, with fighting pride. You start thanking God. Instead of bemoaning of that which you don't have, let's thank God for what you do have. Every one of us sitting in this room right now could come up with 10,000 things that God has given us. Many of them have been given without us being thanks. What does discipleship do? Discipleship fights pride. Man, I got to speed up. Let's go. All right, that's two points. Let's go to number three. Number three. I didn't know how else to say it, uh, so I'll just say it the way I thought it. Number three, true discipleship does not use a business model. You see Jesus saying that in verse 42 and 43? Here comes the lesson down here in verse 42. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you, knows that, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. In other words, you guys are acting like a bunch of pagans. That's not how we're going to do it. That's what Jesus says. This is not like running the military. Somebody has positional authority, and just because they say it, it happens. No. We don't base our discipleship on leadership books, good to great, the effective executive. They might be good to read. They're not going to help you with discipleship. What does Jesus say in verse 43? That's not how it happens among us. Why? Because we're a family, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're a church bought by the blood of Jesus, connected with relatives that don't have our blood, but have Christ's blood. With the assembly. Jesus says, not like the rulers. And, and then, for the next three, I'm going to give you the next three points, then the model is put out before us. Here comes the model. Finish it out with these three points. Number four, true discipleship actively serves. Actively serves. Notice what he says, verse 43. It shall not be so among you. Here comes true discipleship actively serving. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That word diakonos is where we get the word deacon. It means that, that person will be one who waits on tables. Whoever is going to be great is the one who is actively doing some sort of service that nobody wants to do. So inside the church, the influencer 
Is it the prettiest one? Not the one with the most money or the most clout or the loudest leader. The great ones, according to Jesus, in the church are the, the, the ones who will serve, who will do the menial things that only God sees. It will show up on a Friday night with our student ministry and be there just to be with the students. They'll lead a D group and pray with a group of men that nobody even really knows about. That will stand with the weak. I mean, you understand right here in verse 43, here is the whole ethic of the kingdom of God. Here is the complete opposite understanding of worldly greatness. Here's the, here's the nursery worker. Here's the, here's the person standing in the food pantry and helping with somebody that may not be grateful. Here is getting the call one o'clock in the morning and going. Here is visiting the nursing home and nobody seeing it. Here is extending a cold cup of water in the name of Jesus. Look, I, I think the aspiration to be great is a good aspiration but that aspiration needs to be governed by what Jesus has said greatness is. True discipleship is actively serving. Let me give you a fifth thing to consider about true discipleship, number five. It has to do with attitude, your attitude. I want to write down the piece of paper with you, you have there. I have a bad attitude. Because it's probably true about most of us. Especially when you hear what Jesus is going to say right here, verse five. True discipleship has a selfless attitude. You see it? Verse 44. This has been the hardest one for me, I think. Maybe the hardest in this section. Let me read it to you. Verse 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Whoever would be first would be slave. The word slave, doulos. I could give you all the definitions, but you have a pretty good working definition of the word slave. And there's not anything glorious about being a slave. I mean, it means what you think it means. You know, we are, we are naturally given to the attitude of being anything but a slave. I mean, you might even say to somebody, I ain't your slave. If you don't say it, you might at least think it. Then we come to this passage. What is Jesus saying here? It has to do with an attitude of the heart. We are naturally given to a what about me attitude. And Jesus is saying, that's not the attitude of the kingdom. This is something totally different. James and John, you've come in here and said, you want those prize seats. You want to be first. You be willing to be the slave. This changes how we approach home. This changes how we approach our relationships with other people. It changes how we approach church. Our default, our default is being offended how we feel. Jesus says, no, the default of the kingdom is you want to be first. Here's what you, you have an attitude that says, I'll be the slave. I mean, isn't this, this the same thing that Paul taught in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3? Remember what he said? Paul said, do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Verse 44, slave, be the slave of all. Be better than no one. 
be willing to serve anyone. Look, this is a remarkable attitudinal shift. It's a, this is a lifetime of sanctification. This is God working in your heart over the course of time to make you more like Christ and to follow through with what Christ has called us to do. And that brings us to Christ. The very end, verse 45. Last point. True discipleship looks to Christ. You see that verse 45? Every single phrase of this verse is important. This is the highlight of the entire section of Scripture right here in verse 45. So let me just walk through it very quickly. What do we do when we look to Christ? We see him as our model, our model. Jesus says, even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man. In other words, if Christ is your Savior, thank God for that. You look to him for his life, death, and resurrection. But we also look to Jesus as how we deal with people, how we live our lives. He is our model. He's also our Messiah. Jesus says there in verse 45, even as the Son of Man. It's a title he gave himself. He would call himself that, bouncing off what's in Daniel chapter 7, what we read in the Old Testament. He's claiming to be king. We see him as our ruler, our, our king. We see him as our righteousness. I want you to look to Christ as, our, as your righteousness. Jesus says right here in this passage, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You know what you have right there? Right there you have a description of the incarnation. You have the description of Jesus coming as the second Adam and fulfilling all of the law. Why did he come? To serve. We look to Christ as our redeemer. Verse 45, there's the word. It's the word ransom. You ought to circle it. The Greek word, litron, L-Y-T-R-O-N, if you like that sort of thing. Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. You understand the word ransom? To give a payment of a kidnapped victim. Somebody is kidnapped, taken away, and the kidnapper says, you can have this person back if you pay the right amount of money. Jesus said, I came to pay the right amount of money. Kidnapped by your addiction or your lust, Jesus says, I've come with the ransom money. You're a slave to sin. Jesus says, I've come with the ransom. Under the judgment of God, you are rightly condemned. Jesus says, I've come with the money to provide freedom. How did Paul write it for us in Romans chapter 4, verse 25? Paul said he was delivered up. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Or 700 years before, how did Isaiah say it? In Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. Jesus said, I've come to pay the ransom for many. Ransom for. Don't look at the many. Look at the word for. That word for is an important word in Greek. It is the word A-N-T-I-N-T. It means in the place of. I have come to ransom in the place of many people. In other words, here's the gospel. <clears throat> what should have happened to us actually happened to him. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. 
is the highlight of this passage and the heart of the gospel. Now, I'm going to close, and as I do this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, I'm going to explain the gospel, and as I explain it, I want you to preach it to yourself and be strengthened by the gospel. If you are not sure whether or not you are a believer, I want you to listen very carefully and ask God to save you according to what I've just shared with you. Join me now with your heads bowed this morning. You may even want to close your eyes and you just listen. You just listen to the gospel. Listen carefully. The Bible teaches that God has created all of us in his image. That's what the Bible teaches. It's why you are respected. It's because you are an image bearer. That's a good thing. The Bible teaches, though, that all, although we are created in his image, it wasn't long after creation, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and all of humanity after Adam and Eve followed suit. That sin is more than just a mistake. It's more than just us doing wrong things. The sin, according to the Bible, is, is an absolute affront to God. It is a sin against God, a crime against God that must be punished. The wages of sin is death. It's bad news, bad news. The whole Bible is showing us we are in need of help. That God is a holy God who will punish sin and all sinners. That he will send unrepentant sinners to hell. He's just, he's a just God. But that's not all the Bible teaches about God. The Bible teaches us he is merciful and kind and that his steadfast love endures forever. And that steadfast love is shown in the person of Jesus. What do we believe about Jesus? We believe that Jesus is all God and all man. That the incarnation, God in his goodness sent Jesus, his son, to be the second Adam because the first Adam lost everything in the garden. Now the second Adam has come, Jesus. And that human, as a man, lived a perfect life. It's important because we, we need that. We can't, we're not perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life as a part of his redemption and earning a righteousness. He is covered in righteousness that he earned. And as a man, he goes to the cross and there as a human takes the punishment that all humans deserve. He takes that as a human. And as a human, for anyone who will trust this, he clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus. So that when you become a Christian, you become a Christian because of his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection. It tells us it worked. So that there's nothing you do except look to Christ. His punishment in your place, his righteousness covering you. And if you'll turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. Today, you will be saved. Truly, true discipleship is truly glorious. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would draw people to yourself. Men and women would be strengthened. I pray for those that are without Christ that today would be a day of crying out to you. Lord, help us as we worship. Help us as we live. Help us to live as true disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?